Um, I have 57 pages of notes. I have a lot. I have 57 pages of notes. Granted, I write in 16-point font, and it is like a gay pride flag of emotion. 16-point <laughs> font is actually pretty conservative. I think it's more like 24. I have to be able to see it, Jillian. I, I'm just saying. <laughs> you know what I'm just saying? What? Jillian Pensavale. <laughs> Patrick Hines. You guys, before we get to the show, look, we're recording this episode before Christmas. We're a couple weeks out. I'm telling you, more of our live shows are sold out by now. Yeah, I'm very curious to see what the truth is going to be in the in, future, in real time, because <laughs> right now we don't know. So right now, DC is sold out. Philly's almost sold out. Okay. Orlando's almost sold out. Wow. Uh, Seattle's almost sold out. <laughs> You guys are coming out to see us. I'm so excited. And that's amazing, but you guys better get on it. Yeah, if you want to come see us live in 2020, get your tickets now. I'm telling you, you will not be sorry. Yeah. The other thing, you guys, if you want more Jillian and me, get in the Patreon. I'm telling you, the last couple of things we've covered have gotten crazy. Menendez. Menendez. The Menendez stuff. How about how conflicted we are about it? Um, I feel pretty confident in my feelings <laughs> about it. But like, you're feeling for the boys, aren't you? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a it was a it was a 180 from our episode one to our episode two. Yeah, 56 witnesses. That'll that'll do it. <laughs> I, I think that's the number. I guess mm-hmm, mm-hmm. moving forward, everybody. Um, also Lacey Peterson, yeah. Casey Anthony, Jody Arias, um, Lorena, Lorena, Serial, Madeline McCann, Making a Murderer, The Jinx. And so you guys, the five dollar level, you get over a hundred full bonus episodes to download right this second. Mm-hmm. Um, um, at the $7 level, you get ringtones and the after party. At the $20, we send you something every month. We uh, send out slime yeah, a, a few months slime. ago. Slime. <laughs> yeah, slime. My mom has slime now because of this. So anyway, there's so, there's something in there for everyone. There's a lot. I mean, really, it's a it's a smorgasbord <laughs> of content. <laughs> All right, all right, girl, here we are. What are we talking about today? We're talking about Dirty John, the Dirty Truth. I gotta tell you, I love me oxygen. I'll take oxygen in its, like, sassy, it's campy, whatever. (laughs) This one is really, really, really good. Like, this documentary is very well made. I was really blown away by it. Right, so it aired in two parts, so we're gonna do it in two parts. Yeah, so we're doing part one right here, Mm -hmm. and then part two is also available right now and ad-free at the $5 level on the Patreon. Right. It'll also be our regular episode with ads next week. Right. You're not going to want to wait on this one, you guys. We have a lot to say about this. Yeah, I don't really know how I'm going to do it, to be honest with you. I know, me too. I, I have a lot to say. Should we Should we go? Okay. Newport Beach, number one. Are you the ambulance right away? Someone's been stabbed. It's a girl. Do you see blood? Yes. I felt like I caused this. This is the last thing I ever wanted to happen. There are life and death stakes in this story. Many women were terrorized. I met John online. He made me feel wonderful. It was the best feeling in the world. His profile said that he was single, a doctor, everything you want to see in a man. John was very attractive, very, very charming. John Meehan was a serial predator. He went from victim to victim. I knew he was trying to hurt my mom, hurt my family. He said I was a whore and a bitch and I was going to pay for what I did. He broke me in half. I was a good person. Hi, Mom. He's going to turn on you and destroy your life. John is the most dangerous, devious individual that I ever prosecuted. 
I was worried that John was going to kill me to try to get the money. Inside the backpack, he had a revolver, hundreds of rounds of ammo. I knew that John was capable of murder. One of the lessons of this story is that monsters don't always look like monsters. John Meehan was a psychopath, but he knew right from wrong, and he chose wrong. You enjoy your time left on this earth, okay? John was evil. This guy grabbed me by the waist. Um, you want to start us off? Yeah. Okay. I just have something to say. Your arms are crossed. I'm really mad. Okay, tell me everything. We don't victim blame on this podcast. No, 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 no. We don't do it. Yeah. And I'm, God damn it, not going to start today. <laughs> but it's going to be hard. I'm going to tell you something. Yeah. I think there's a lot of responsibility here. Yes, yes. Because it opens in 2014 with Deborah Newell. Yeah. And she's an interior designer. And I don't think anyone deserved what this asshole John did to anybody. But I think Deborah could have <laughs> done a little, a couple things different. I'm going to say that from the top. And I'm going to try really hard to not be a dick about it. <laughs> I'm really going to try. Listen, my favorite thing is when you're a dick about things, so I don't want you to try too hard. But, like, she's not the bad guy here, but I think she's kind of responsible for a lot of things. I do, too. And I've heard podcasts talk about this ad nauseum, and people are saying it's not called Dumb Deborah, it's called Dirty John or whatever. Listen, I think that as a parent, there's some onus on her. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. great. I'm so glad we agree on that, because this would have been a rough night. I know. Can you imagine if, if you I was like, like, you leave my Deborah alone? I'd say, well, then I can't do this. <laughs> the first time you get up and walk out. Yeah, I would. <laughs> Too, if you were just like absolutely not, I'd she's like, a saint, that Deborah. Okay, well, this was really great. <laughs> well, we need Deborah. Yeah, I gotta say, her life looks like the kind of life I hope I have at her age. She's like a beautiful older woman, probably in her fifties or whatever. Mm-hmm. She's got this beautiful home, right? And she's a designer, an interior designer. In 2014, I was single, having a good time, successful, full life with family, friends, and work. And I felt like I had this one thing missing, and it was love. She had it all but love. Right. <laughs> okay, which is like, fine. Yeah. This is not what, what I take issue with. I want to say one thing. Yeah. Hero Bell for me, mm-hmm. because I don't <laughs> okay. think that John is that hot. Good. Thank you. <laughs> Good. But I want to also say this. Oh, no. He would never have gotten away with this if all these other women didn't think he was hot. Well, yeah. There's a lot of just white privilege, like yes. rich white people totally. action happening here. <laughs> Deborah's part of that totally. in California. She's part of that problem for she's sure. Like, she's like that California, like, I just like want to find fun lamps and love. And I'm like, oh, hey, You just invented a, an HGTV show for Deborah. Lamps and love. <laughs> So Deborah and John meet online. They met on our time, which is like for the 50 over crowd. And that's true. One thing about John's profile that I recall is that everything I was looking for in a man seemed to be in his profile. I wanted a man that went to church, someone that was into his family, successful, intelligent. He's a doctor. He's seemed so genuine. 
Okay, I had this as a note for later, but I'm just going to say it now. Yeah. Isn't there a, a too good to be true component to this? 100,000%. You know what I mean? Yeah, like he just ticked every box. But like, it's also like, Deborah, I'm not going to give you like an award for wanting like a family-oriented <laughs> rich doctor. Like she's not the only person in the world who wants that. No, that's why he was able to do this for 20 years. Exactly. So she's not like, you know, it's just me maybe, but I want someone who's like nice and successful and smart. Good looking. Shocking, Deborah. Goes to church, like, right. give me a break. So we meet Christopher Gofford from the LA Times and he's the reporter who broke this fucking story and made the podcast. Right. But he mm. also says, he was like, you know, John was out of Casting Central and I'm like, it's Central, Central Casting. Casting. I have the same note. <sighs> what Deborah Newell didn't know was that John Meehan was a serial predator. He went from victim to victim, took what he could and found a new one. He would terrorize them. He looked like a doctor out of Casting Central. So if you're going to impersonate a doctor, it helps to look like you belong on the cast of Grey's Anatomy. But we also meet Tara, and Tara is Deborah's daughter. Can I get a quick spelling on that name? T. E double R A Tara. It's not Tara. <laughs> and it sounds. I'm not gonna make fun of her voice. Like that's like low. Yeah. You know that's stupid. Low hanging fruit. And, and everyone else did it. Exactly. Like it doesn't matter. The thing about this girl, she's fucking badass. Yeah. And there is a little bit of like she just very much is who she is. Well, they're all very blonde white California. Uh-huh. They just are. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And sometimes people sound like that. And let me tell you something. Upspeak is not a fucking crime. No. People do that all the time. Vocal fry is a thing. We're humans. Yes. I know women. I know it's hard for a lot of people to think that women. <laughs> are also human beings. We are. I'm here to tell you on episode 158 of TCO, women are human beings. Breaking news. Breaking news. Guess what? Enough. You but, really are so mad. I'm so mad. But so, and guess what? Here it comes more. Because I learn a lot about Deborah from two things that Tara says. Yes. I'm very protective of my mom in general. The guys that she was married to before took complete advantage of her. You know immediately, okay, Deborah's immature. The yep. kids have to raise the parents. Yes. And that shit drives me nuts. I totally Deborah, agree. be an adult and be a mother. And Tara today is young. Yeah. She was very young when this happened. Absolutely. She was a teen, she was a 19-year-old girl. So if a 19-year-old is like, my whole life I've been protecting my mother, yeah. it's like, no. I know, I know. But Deborah is such an enigma because she is so successful. She has her own interior design business. She's very wealthy. She's very put together. Her kids seem to love her. So it is weird. She is an enigma of a character. Yeah, but like, be a parent. <laughs> I absolutely agree with that. Right? So it's their first date. So again, red flag city. I am the mayoress. Uh-huh. She, I voted for you. Yes, and I'll you. vote for you again. <laughs> Don't vote third party, you guys. No. Our first date, John talked about all his success, his family, a very, very charming, intelligent man. He asked me a lot of questions about my life. It was almost surreal. I'm thinking, hmm, I really like this guy. She's like, he asked me questions. It was surreal. And I'm like, wow, that that dating scene must be really bad. He asked her a single question, and she was like, I'm marrying this Are man. Yeah, 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 totally. And then she tells us the story about how he walks her home to her house, and then, like, apparently invites himself in and then into her bedroom and lays down on the bed and isn't going anywhere. And Deborah is like, uh, no, girl. She screeches on the brakes. I just looked at him, and I said, oh, no, uh-uh. You need to leave. And I said, that's not who I am. He was very persistent, kept saying, just let me lay here a little bit longer. I was quite disappointed. This is so gross. And then she's like, well, you know, he was kind of good looking and he asked me a question. So 
when he called me the next day begging for forgiveness, yes, I went on that second date. I forgave him, said, let's start over. Uh, Let's go on another date. And then, you know, like the first few dates were perfect because he's a professional. They always held hands. They would walk and talk for hours. And Deb is so beautiful. And they were soulmates. It's like, John, pull it back a little bit. (laughs) Girl. It's a lot. (laughs) Like for the second date. What did you go to the Patrick Hyde School of Dating? Like the second date soulmates? Whoa. (laughs) You know, Steve moved in with me basically on the second date. What? Good lesbian stock. I was raised by lesbians. I'm just telling you, I I knew that I loved him and that we were going to be together forever. And so I basically just made him move in with me. He's not a prisoner, Jillian. He wants to be there. Steve, blink twice (laughs) if you're okay. (laughs) Then we meet, air quotes, Jacqueline, Deb's other daughter. Oh, God. We have to talk about this for 49 minutes. Jacqueline does not want her identity revealed, so she does her interview in shadow. Right, but they don't change her voice. And like, this is, this came out well after the podcast when the entire family was famous. So like, Jacqueline, I see what you're trying to do, I guess, (laughs) but then don't, don't participate at all. Well, again, it's very easy to think of these women as caricatures these two daughters are bad ass bitches well Jax was like oh I hated him on site Jax I'm gonna call her Jax Jax call me yeah when I first met John Meehan his scrubs were torn I thought that he was a fake I just had a very bad feeling about him her gut was like nope and she just heard you say her gut and she wants to murder you you you're the good gut, Jax. Come on. There's more to life outside LA or whatever. You're gorgeous. Probably. Probably. Your I don't shadow know. is gorgeous. So Deborah and John start dating in October. By November, John basically moved in. So that's the other thing. Like, Deborah tells this story as though it just happened to her. That makes me cr- She's like, I don't know what happened. I found us a house. I personally moved him in. And suddenly we were living. I don't know. It all just happened to me. Like, the problem with the telling of it is that she understands that like this is probably gonna go bad but she made all these choices anyway she wants to sort of tell it as a swept off my feet story even though she is illuminating the red the red flags along the way at every step right and i think she says things where like she doesn't even know that they're red flags for example (laughs) she goes julia's really on fire tonight i'm just really upset she's like you know i had fallen in love with john and i just really wanted to get to know him and i'm like Deb, what'd you just say? Say it back to me. What do you think you said? You can't be in love and then not know anything about the guy. Am I wrong? I, no, I, you're not wrong, especially at like this stage of life. At this age. So, but here's what we do know about John's family. Yeah, so we go back to 1964, 50 years earlier. John grew up in the San Jose area, and most of what I know about that period of his life, I learned from his sister's. John had a father who romanticized the gangster lifestyle and the gangster ethos and brought John up to believe that if someone crossed you, you went after them twice as hard. If they wronged you, you broke their legs. You know, if someone crossed you, you go after them twice as hard. And I'm like, what a shitty way to start, like, to just, like, mold his little brain like that. And so John tells Deb, oh, the reason I don't talk about my family is because they're all dead. Right. (laughs) And we learned that in reality, he had two sisters who were alive and well and living in California. Right. And then we meet Joe, his best friend. Oh, my God. I was John Meehan's best friend from 1974 to 1985. 
from 1974 to 1985. I'm like, that's specific. I wonder why that is. Stay tuned. Here we go. So he's like, you know, John was very smart, studious, of course, never mentioned his family. And John's parents had a really bad divorce. John, of course, blamed his mother for everything. I wonder where that came from. Like the fake gangster father, probably. Uh Mm -hmm. Great. But then we learn that John really wants to make a quick buck. So he pitches the idea to his friend Joe of being gigolos. You guys. (laughs) Gigolos. That's right. I said it. Because they said it. John just came up to me and he said, we can make so much money doing this gigolo thing. We would have sex with older women and we make all this money. A couple hundred bucks a pop. Back then, that was a lot of money. So here's the thing. We see pictures of John, and John's a very hot, like, handsome, older guy, whatever. You just said you don't think he's hot. But, like, but I can see how people would be attracted to him. Okay. This guy, Joe, does not look like a guy that, like, older women are going to pay to have sex with. Right. So so <laughs> he's painting a picture where they were supposed to be these, like, young, hot studs. Just a gigolo. Yeah, and everywhere, everywhere I go. I they were gigolos, Jillian. And, and Joe's, like, just to be, like, super specific, they were much older women. Right. Who, like, really wanted to get some uh-huh. and this kind of sparked the idea that like oh like older women kind of want like a young piece like me <laughs> young hot piece like me says John in his stupid uh-huh. dumb brain mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of what sparks this whole thing again trying to manipulate older women they were gigolos I know is that a thing I mean I think it's just sex work really like right. it's, so yeah it's, you just never think of it what a world I know what a time to be alive time to be alive <laughs> so anyway yeah I guess gigolos are a thing in conclusion thanks for coming to our TED talk <laughs> So, you guys, med school is expensive. Right. <laughs> Some people take a second job or take out a loan or yep. something. Mm-hmm. What did John do, I wonder? John became a Coke dealer. Because, you know, you can't be one thing without being another. He started to dabble into drug sales, cocaine. And he started selling large amounts. He started getting real big. He started bragging about how he was cutting the coke and it was like half the grade it was when he got it he saw green it was money 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 all hours of the night people were coming over three four five in the morning and i saw a change in john first of all i guess you can't be like a small time coke dealer he is dealing large amount like kilos and kilos of coke but it also seems like if you're dealing cocaine at the level that john is dealing at this point that's your full-time fucking job you're not a student anywhere right and the thing is like we have joe here to tell us what happened yeah so joe's like okay so one day john's like hey bro uh (laughs) can you help me get three kilos of cocaine for some associates of mine oh my god and dummy joe is like yeah (laughs) that sounds like a great idea You know, and I was dumb. I was not, I wasn't the big dealer like him. And I said, okay, yeah, yeah, I got some guys. I went and set it up. And also, like, how does Joe also know where to get three kilos? Who are these associates? It makes no sense. Like, how do you do this? So the next day, partying, coke everywhere, and the freaking ATF busts in. The door just came a hole through it. Say, ATF hit the floor. I was scared shit. So then all the cops, according to Joe, according according to to Gigolo Joe, Joe, (laughs) the cops put pillowcases on everyone's head Uh and put them all in different rooms so that they could like find out who the snitch was. Right. And Joe today is like, I knew who the snitch was. I knew it was John. 
And John doesn't deny it, not for a second. Right. And apparently this is like the largest bust in Santa Clara history to date or something. And so John's like, hey, Gigolo Joe. Yes, it's me. I'm the snitch. Because the thing is, you can't go to med school with something like that on my record. So I, John, have decided that you, Joe, are going to take the fall for me. Yes. And I was like, so that's why the dates are so specific about why they were friends. (laughs) That's exactly why. So we meet Laura Richards. I love her. I love her accent. I love her. She's like super hot and super British and super smart. She's a criminal behavioral analyst. She's here for like the smarty pants talk of just saying like the psychology and the science of like why people do things like this. Some people called him a con man, but actually John Meehan was far more than that. He was a predatory individual. He didn't form real relationships or attachments or bonds to people. He just used people. He ticks many of the boxes in the psychopathy checklist. So after this drug bust, because John's the snitch, so he doesn't, he just like rats out Gigolo Joe. Yeah, gets to go back to school. Right, so he goes to college in Arizona, and then he graduates, and then he heads to Dayton, Ohio for law school. And in Ohio, he meets Tanya Bayless. And this is in 1988. Yeah. So now, again, because this documentary has everybody, we see Tanya. Tanya's telling us her own story. I was working as a nurse in the operating room. And I was out that night with a group of coworkers. I just made my way to the restroom and I was stopped by John, which turned into a conversation. The way she told this part of the story. I know what you're going to say. She said, he stopped me on the way to the bathroom. That's how they do it. I'm telling you. Yeah. I know you're listening at home. Someone else has been through this. It happens all the time at bars. Hey, I mean, it's horrible. But she says she's like, I did not give him my phone number that night, but he knew where I worked. And so he called to the operating room the next night and had me paged. He had her paged in the operating room? So it's one of those stories where you feel like in the moment, maybe she thought it was kind of sweet, but it is also an insane power move. And like in this moment, I was thinking about like all the male doctors. Mm -hmm. No one said like, this is a fucking red flag or this isn't allowed. Like some random fucking stranger you meet at a bar that you told where you work is just allowed to page you in the fucking emergency room. Right, but the thing is, she's like, John made me feel great. I would say that I was naive You know, he said all the right things. You're really pretty. I'd love to get to know you and, you know, any chance we can go out. And I was flattered. I think I fell in love with John because of his attentiveness towards me and his interest in me and how good he made me feel. So they dated for a year. They got married. And, you know, when you get married, maybe sometimes there's family involved. Right. John says he didn't invite his family because he was so embarrassed by them. Uh-huh. But then we see the video. We see video from the wedding night. And Tanya is telling us. Well, not the wedding. Like the part. The reception. <laughs> the reception. Not that kind of video, you guys. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. But like it's the reception. And like I guess all of John's friends are there. And Tanya is telling us today. The wedding video. I was so excited to watch it. But I noticed in the reception time with all the guys, you know, have it had probably too many drinks. One of them refers to him as Filthy John. Let me start by saying this. John Meehan's nickname is Filthy John Meehan. All of these fucking idiot dudes are like, oh, bro, bro, bro. He's, his nickname was the Cruiser. We call him Filthy John. And, and Tanya like sits him down and is like, girl, why are they saying that? She's like, let's go to the videotape. Right. Click, click. <laughs> what is this? And this is another thing that you can easily explain away. Like, whatever. They're just drunk. Like, don't worry about it. We yeah. really, it was an open bar, whatever. And that's, you can explain that. That away. Totally. Then Tanya tells us that like a few years into the marriage, mm-hmm. one of the little stones was falling out of her, her little wedding ring. Right. And she goes to have the stone replaced. Sure. And the jeweler took the ring and said, you know, this isn't real, right? And 
I got, I, I pretend, I said yes. Yeah, I said yes, because that's humiliating. And she's like, uh, yeah, I totally knew. And she's like, because this is mortifying. But I don't think Tanya means it like that. Like, if you're poor, when Steve and I got married, we bought rings in Chinatown and they were $30 each. Great. We wore them for a decade. Yeah, I don't care. No. So I don't think Tanya's saying like she was mortified because the ring was fake. I think over the course of the years, Tanya's starting to pick up on things. Like, you know, isn't he supposed to be a doctor? Like, why is he buying me a fake wedding ring? Yeah, she's mortified that the jeweler like knows more about her husband than she does. Exactly. That's really what this exactly. is. Exactly. And then Christopher, the writer who broke this story, he says, I just think Tanya had no idea this kind of person existed. And look, I think it's like whenever we say like, how could you be a 911 dispatcher? And right. like, why are you asking so many questions? And I'm like, because when you get a phone call that like a 12 year old girl has been stabbed 60 times, uh-huh. you cannot believe your life right, in that right, moment. Right. So you're like, wait, she was where? I, they did what? So I get that shock of like, there's no way my husband of six years is doing it. There's, it's impossible. Totally. So they have kids. So they have the two kids. And then, and then John takes her aside and just decides he's not happy out of nowhere. And then, of course, Tanya, oh, you can hear the regret in her saying this to this day. She says to him, like, and I said, you know, what's wrong? You know, I can change. Yeah, what can I do other than supporting you financially and making all the money and being a mother and your supportive wife? Like, is there anything else I can do? Anything else I could possibly do? Do you need anything? Yeah. So John files for divorce and she was devastated because she married him to be with him forever. So, you know, Tanya is like... Oh my God. Tanya is putting on her goddamn Inspector Gadget hat. Well, it's it's her brother-in-law who Uh really does it. So her family is just like, hey girl, like... Because she's gone through it and she's like talking to her family, which I think is great. Like she clearly has a support system. Yeah. And her brother-in-law is like, why don't we find his family? This does really seem so different from what it was like for these six or seven years or whatever. Yeah. And the the internet was invented five minutes ago. So let's use, let's get on the online and do that. Brother-in-law gives the family a goog. (laughs) And Tanya's like, he found John's mom's full name and phone number in five minutes. Yeah. And was like, here you go, girl. (laughs) Just call her and ask her what's up. Right. Because remember, John's telling everybody that his entire family is dead. Or he's embarrassed by them. No, he was embarrassed by them for Tanya. Oh. oh. They were dead for Angela. See? (laughs) With my niece trembling, I dialed that number and I called her. And I said, "Uh, Dolores, this is Tanya. I'm married to your son, John. And the phone was silent. And then she said, oh, Tanya, I knew you'd call me one day. And basically the mom's like, what took you so long? (laughs) Was that Columbo? Uh, no, 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 no. Columbo was, oh, I, I, let me ask you a few questions. Just one more thing. But. <laughs> oh, my God. So John's mom, like, spills the tea. And she unloaded on me that he had been arrested, that she asked me if he's still using drugs. And I said, what? John's mom is like, actually, you know what? Just call his sisters because they'd love to talk to you. And Tanya's like, sisters? Right. So I called both of his sisters. They laid out a lot of stories about insurance fraud, about having a friend, you know, hit him with the car on purpose and he broke his leg and he got some money for that, that he had um, put some glass intentionally in his taco at Taco Bell and filed a suit against that. That was not congruent with the man that I married. So Tanya's like, this is interesting information. And then she just starts straight up snooping. She's like, my brother-in-law did that awesome googing thing. Like, let me see what I can find. And she starts, she finds like her co-worker's photo with like their face circled, like creepy serial killer shit. Seriously. Directions to a hotel room. And then like all the anesthesia drugs. John had potent anesthetic drugs. There was no reason for those to be there. I'm a nurse anesthetist. There's no reason 
that you bring home drugs. I knew that something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. And then, as if it can't get any worse, right. she realizes that not only was John using the drugs himself, but he was shipping the drugs from Ohio to California to his brother. And then his brother fucking dies. He his, overdoses. He overdoses on the drugs that John was sending to him that he was obviously stealing from the fucking hospital. They call me and say the brother is dead. Then basically I'm saying this this needs to end right now. I can't hold on to this information. I don't know exactly what he's doing, but I've got to report this. That's when, you know, I I went to the police and said this is what I know. The minute Tanya learns about this, yeah. er, right <laughs> down to the nearest precinct, and she tells officer? the cops officer? everything. Yeah, yeah, my husband basically killed his brother totally. by supplying him with these drugs, which is absolutely tragic. Right. In the middle of all of this, John moves to Indiana. Yeah. John moved to the state of Indiana, started working there, and some friends of mine who are also nurse anesthetists warned the board that he was there. This is a period of time where things got really scary for me. John believed that I was the one making the calls to the Indiana Board of Nursing and ruining his career. So now, all of a sudden, John is making these, like, unbelievably terrifying, threatening phone calls to her. Right. That she records and sends to the police. (laughs) Smartly. I have it on excellent, excellent authority. You're the one who's been making the phone calls. I have never called the Indiana Board of Nursing. I got a big smile on my face. And you know why? Because it's going to get done. What's going to get done? You will understand when the time comes. I'll be in Bermuda having a big Cobra Libra with a 22-year-old when it happens. That's you nice. keep that in mind. These phone calls are fucking terrifying. He's basically talking about, like, having her killed. He's saying, I, you know, you should enjoy your time left on this earth. That, to me, it's very clear. Yeah. I'm not Columbo, but I know that. Seriously. <laughs> and she's like, you dumb bitch. Everyone's going to know it's you. Right. Who right. else could it be? It's always the husband, you right. idiot. <laughs> So we meet Detective Dennis Lucan. Yeah. And he came on the scene in 2002. And that's when things get turned around. Right. Lucan is here to save the day. The case had kind of gone cold. And I joined the Warren County Drug Task Force. And my boss asked me to reopen the case in 2002. We knew that he was stealing drugs from patients to feed his addiction. He was a pathological liar. He had no conscience. He had no remorse. And that's what made John so dangerous. Because the thing is, like, we learned John moves around from state to state and county to county and different jurisdiction for years. Yeah. So it's hard for for people to keep track. So now, like, he ends up in Newport Beach, California, and now we're back to Deborah. Right. So it's 2014. It's 14 years after the whole Tanya situation. Right. And now it's like Deb found the house. They're going to move in together. And she's like, you know, it was moving way too fast for me, but I moved in with him anyway. From this point on, almost everything Deborah says starts with, it really made me feel awful. I really didn't want to do it, but I did it anyway. Mm-hmm, Everyone mm-hmm. in my life was telling me not to do it, but I did it anyway. So remember Tara, not Tara? Yes, Tara. The daughter? Mm-hmm. So she tells us a story about like going to her mom's, where of course John has moved himself in. Right, and remember, the daughters hate him. Right. And so this is causing a lot of tension with their mom slash best friend forever. Exactly. Whatever. <laughs> be a parent. Be the parent. Stop. So Tara's like snooping. I noticed that there was a box in the closet. I quickly shut the door because I didn't want it to see me snoop through his stuff. On top of the box, it had a nursing certificate. He said he was a doctor. I just didn't appreciate being lied to. 
So Tara goes and confronts her mom. And Tara, the voice of reason, again, the daughter, the child, is right. trying to be the rational one in the room to the adult, the her mother, saying, why are you moving in with this person you've only known for two months? Right. But Deborah, who's told us 15,000 times that this was all moving too fast for her, right. <laughs> she says, you know, well, I looked at Tara and I said, Tara, you know, this is my life. And, you know, please just let me live it. You're Deborah's right on. And I'm like, well, Tara, you know, this is my life. You know, please let me live it. Thank you. I know. I hate it because I'm like, Deb, you just told us you thought it was all happening too fast. (laughs) And here your daughter is like, stop gaslighting your own fucking kids. And then John sees this confrontation happening. And according to Tara, he came up behind my mom and started screaming at me. Yeah, you you want your mom to yourself. What a monster. You're just jealous. Like, all this stupid shit. But this is the first of a million times where, like, I understand that everybody comes to their own situations with their own baggage or whatever. But if I was ever with somebody, Jake Gyllenhaal, for example, after Steve's untimely passing. Absolutely. That you had absolutely nothing to do with. That I had nothing to do with. I was with you the whole night. Exactly. Drinking. And Jake were to start screaming at Daisy, I would have to dismiss Mr. Gyllenhaal. Right. You can't have a new boyfriend screaming at your child. You just allow that that shit in your house and Deb did it I mean they only knew each other for two months but most of that time she just let John treat her kids like shit when all her kids were trying to do was like hey mom right can you stop right and the thing is like Tara was right she found a lie right she, on paper she right. found a lie Tara left I confronted John but he had an answer for everything they said that he didn't lie he had his doctorate They're basically the same thing, but one is under the nurses and one is under a doctor's. And he said, but we both put people to sleep. John was so persuasive. I know I keep saying this, but he was that good. So Deb and John start going to therapy. (laughs) Great. So John, he uses this to manipulate her. Right. So he's like, therapy, perfect. He's going to take over this therapy session and Uh basically lie to the therapist and get the therapist to agree with him. Uh So he can say like, Deb, what have me and the therapist been saying Right, right, right. Oh, he's so gross. (laughs) So in therapy, John's like, well, her kids are super spoiled and need boundaries, which to be fair. Right. (laughs) Is a little bit true. Right. But then one of them is telling us like the boundaries consisted of not having my kids attend Thanksgiving if they were going to have this kind of behavior. Deborah uninvites her daughters to Thanksgiving. Yeah. Which is... Really, this is really, truly heartbreaking. Honestly, though, they probably had a much better time at some restaurant or wherever. With their friends. Yeah, they they had a Friendsgiving. (laughs) They were fine. But it's heartbreaking that you're standing here literally screaming at your mother saying, can you please look at what reality is? And she's like, but I think he's cute. Right. You can't come to Thanksgiving now. Right. What? That's unbelievable. So Laura, the expert, the hot expert we love, she's like... When you're looking to control someone, you don't want daughters and sisters and mothers and, and people into interfering in the relationship. In most of these cases, you see isolation. No, they never say, I'm done with all this Romeo and Juliet stuff. I'm going to move to stage two isolation. It's a very subtle and nuanced thing that happens. And I'm like, Laura, I know, right? (laughs) So then after Laura, like the voice of reason, so smart, it cuts to Deb being like, I just couldn't understand why they couldn't be happy for me. (laughs) And I'm like, Deb. I know. Are you kidding me? He's screaming at your kids in the middle of the living room. Jacqueline tells a story about how like she never believed it was like even working because his scrubs were torn and filthy. Like Deborah, the evidence is right fucking in front of you. Yeah, maybe like the degree 
agree that he's actually a nurse. Right. <laughs> it's actually, it's right there. Right. So in addition to isolating her, he's also like following her and like has to be in control of her every move. Right. Because she has this decorating gig in Vegas. I had to go to Vegas. I was doing a clubhouse out there. Design and furniture and all that. He didn't like me driving at dark or, and I looked at it this, oh, he's so protective not controlling. So from date two or three, he's begging her to marry him. Yeah, she actually says, as of the third date, he was telling me he wanted to marry me, grow old on me, die in my arms. That's weird. Die in my arms? Are you the notebook? Right. <laughs> no, you're not. That's a Noah and Allie story and just theirs. So she goes... You guys, I just, you guys is us, right. like the viewer. She's like, I just have, it's not in my stomach. I'm just thinking, why am I doing this? My whole family's going to kill me. But fuck it, let's get married. She marries him. And we see the wedding video. John, please repeat after me. Hi, John. Hi, John. Take care, Brooke. Take care, Brooke. To be my wedded wife. Oh, my gosh. Oh. I cannot believe that we are seeing the wedding video. It's unbelievable. And she didn't tell, she secretly gets married to this guy. Right. But then at the wedding, we hear people like, Aww. And I'm like, who was there? Right. He has a dead family or they're all embarrassed. She didn't yeah. tell anyone because they'd all be mad at her. And I'm like, oh, wait, it's Vegas. It's right? Vegas, baby. It's like paid witnesses. It's bachelorettes. Totally. And Elvises. Totally. <laughs> Great. So now we're back to 2001. It's 13 years before this wedding. And we're in Ohio now. And we meet this woman, Meg Maggart. And it's the same old story. Everything you could possibly want in an online dating profile. Right, right. I met John online. His profile said that he was single, that he was a doctor, an anesthesiologist, uh, just a great profile, like everything you want to see in a man. He was just so perfect. Everything you want to see. She had low self-esteem. You guys, we've done this all before. And it makes me so sad because she's just so comfortable saying to us, like, I had a low opinion of myself. Absolutely. I was exactly the target that he was looking for. Right. And you look at Megan, you're like, Meg, sweetheart, you're so beautiful. And you're so, you seem like a nice, articulate, smart, funny person. Yeah. What's not to like about you, Meg? Right. And so she meets John online and they start dating. And three months into dating, they go to Mexico. You guys, this is so bonkers. It's so like Jodi Arias, right? Where totally. they go to some like convention and Mexico and he's like let's go together after three months of dating and she's like great uh, he just asked me if I wanted to go be with him like wow okay so now this beautiful man is taking me on a trip day one I'm like this is awesome the weather is beautiful the hotel was beautiful I am going to have a great time and then oh my god she goes now let me tell you about day two <laughs> day two let me tell you about day two John said that he had to leave for a little bit that his back hurt Okay. He came back with a vial of drugs, wrapped a belt around his ankle, and he inserted the drugs with a hypodermic needle between his toes. He's shooting drugs with an intravenous needle in between his toes in the middle of the room. At like 1130 in the morning. He's you know? shooting up in between his toes, Jillian. I know. In between his toes. I don't want to. He's known her for three months. Like, I feel like I didn't burp in front of Steve for a year. Right, but he's an addict. So Meg is like, okay, I'm terrified. Right. Uh, <laughs> but she says, but I'm also brave. Which I love. Oh, I love Meg. So she's like, this is not right. No. Call me crazy. <laughs> I know I've had a couple margs, breakfast margs, which is 
fine. And you're on vacation in Mexico. Do you? And so John somehow gets her to bring him to the hospital to get even more drugs because apparently this piece of shit can convince anybody of anything. And I think Meg also saw that as maybe an exit strategy. Like, I'm going to take this dipshit to the hospital and get the fuck out of here. Because that's exactly what happens. Right. She doesn't even stop the car. She just pushes him out into the hospital like, bye. And she hightails it the hell out of there. Yeah. When I leave Mexico, John is still in the hospital. Drove home, getting all of my luggage out, and John's gym bag is in there. And his gym bag had spilled. And I found a card, business card, that had his ex-wife's name on it. So I called Tanya the next day. Meg wastes <laughs> no time, is immediately calling Tanya and being like, Girl. Bitch, you're not going to believe it. I know. <laughs> also, my name's Meg. Anyway, and tells her everything. And then Tanya's like, you know who you should call? Detective Lucan. Totally. That detective. Right. So Meg's like, okay, girl, loving you. Call me every five seconds. Totally. Let me know you get home safe. They're best friends now. <laughs> They're making a true crime comedy podcast. 100%. I would listen to it every day. I get a call from Meg. He told me that there had to be drugs in John's house. He was afraid there were weapons in the house. He told me that. They had been trying to get John for months and months. He asked me if I would go into the house and see if I could find any drugs. She does it. You guys, she does it. And she's telling us that she's scared out of her fucking mind. She's like, I know that piece of shit is on a bed in Mexico, but like, I was afraid that every second he was going to pop up right behind Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Yeah. No question. And then they did this thing in the documentary reenactment where like they did like an image of a man and I screamed. Did I you? screamed. I screamed. Girl. I know. <laughs> He's not here. It's okay. <laughs> So everything that incriminates him is up in the attic. I was so afraid to stick my head up there. Stuck my head up there, and it was chock full of empty vials. There were vials stuck in the gym shoes. There were vials everywhere. I couldn't believe it. Like, this is really true. And this man is now going to kill me because I helped. She is incredulous. She can't believe... She's like, oh my God, I really liked him. I was in Mexico with him. I know, like this morning. <laughs> Those breakfast marts are just wearing off. I know, and that'll sober you up real quick, seeing vials and weapons. Yeah. So she's now in fear for her life because she's like, who is this person? Oh my God, can you even imagine? I cannot imagine. So she calls Detective Dennis back and she's like, bitch, you're not going to believe it. And he's like, I'm on my way. So they get a search warrant. Uh -huh. And then they get to the house and really turn the place upside down. They're finding guns. <laughs> which she can't have because of the restraining order that Tanya had against him. I'm sorry. Just your turns of phrase when you said turning it upside down. I don't know why that was so funny. That's a thing people say. It totally is. Sometimes when you react like that, I'm like, did I say it wrong? No, Because no. I probably did. You guys being a woman. I'm just like, what did I do wrong? That's what it's like. Can you imagine? I sneeze and say I'm sorry. It's bad. And I'm a good sneezer. I go into the, the elbow pit and I just go, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Isn't that so awful? I love you so much. Isn't that horrible? That is really horrible. I need to stop. Like, I just need to yeah. stop. It's just a thing. Like, that needs to get out of my body. I'm, a, I'm sneezing. I'm a human. That's okay. So they find a gun, which, funnily enough, John can't have uh -huh. because of that restraining order that Tanya with the girls, Emily and Abby, yep. has against him. So they're like, this is great. It yeah. can't, like, every single thing they uncover is horrible, but also awesome. Yeah. And so they actually 
charge him. He gets like hauled into court. You guys, he gets like all this time. He gets like two years in jail. He pulls this shit Mm -hmm. where he tells the judge like, okay, girl, I know I need to go to jail for this, but I have to like deal with my dogs. He has to like feed his dogs. Leave the dogs out of it, number one. I know. (laughs) John is supposed to show up at 10 a.m. for sentencing on Monday morning. He doesn't show up. Lucan wastes no time. He calls Tanya, the ex-wife. That Monday, I got a call from Detective Lucan. And what he said to me was, Tanya, John did not show for his sentencing, and they sometimes take hostages. She needs to run like hell and get away from John. And he said, I want you to go get your children out of daycare and school and go hide. Hide! He says, hide! Yeah, he's like, you need to run like hell and get away from John. (laughs) Sometimes they take hostages. Can you imagine getting that phone call? No. It's like, uh, detective. I know. I hope he said. (laughs) I hope the context is more like, we we need to talk about this. And like, I hope you're sitting down. I'm going to tell you some really scary things, but also be running while I'm on the phone. Get on the cordless, girl. (laughs) So Tanya didn't need to be that worried because John goes to Michigan where he robs three hospitals he Uh used to work at. He robs them of their anesthesia kits. And you guys, this just gets crazier. Yeah. He goes to the hotel room where he like takes all the drugs. Right. Some poor hotel attendant finds him passed out on the floor. Right. This poor attendant calls 911. They get him an ambulance. He's in the ambulance. Like in the middle of the road, John jumps out of the ambulance. He jumped out of the ambulance, ran into a local uh, department store, climbed up an elevator shaft, and fought like hell as the cops tried to climb up and get him. Runs up an elevator (laughs) shaft. Which is like, how do you even... The superhuman strength of like three anesthesia kits coursing through his veins. Seriously. He's hanging on to like this elevator shaft. These cops are underneath him trying to jump up and get him. And get him. They can't get you, M. I know. <laughs> one of the guys, like one of the cops jumps onto his legs. They all fall 15 feet. Right. And, and Detective Lucan's like, they fought like hell, these cops. <laughs> oh God, did they fight like hell. To try to get him in an elevator shaft. I still don't even know how he ended up there. It's <laughs> in a JCPenney. In a JCPenney of all places. It's all insane. So at that point, John was placed under arrest for the theft of those anesthesia kits. So the cops arrest him after this like stint at JCPenney. Uh-huh. And they he's going to jail. And Tanya says, like, I was going to have two years of a reprieve. But that's not what happened, Jillian. Right, because in Ohio, and I have a lot of mixed feelings on this. Uh-huh. So in Ohio, if you successfully complete treatment after a drug charge, they clear it from your record. So you get sentenced to jail, but they put you in rehab. Mm-hmm. And if you complete like the 30-day program or whatever, they release you and they wipe it from your record. Which can be great. Yes. And also terrible. And we're living in the terrible. Right. So he's back on the street. Right. And the thing is, he finds out somehow, because uh-huh. again, he can get anybody to do anything for him. He finds out that our friend Meg. Remember Meg Maggard? Her name was on the search warrant. Of course it was. And the search warrant where they where she found all the vials in the in the attic, that whole thing. Right. He loses it. Yeah, John goes crazy. John calls me and tells me that I'm going to regret ever helping Dennis Lucan. He said I was a whore and a bitch and I was going to pay for what I did. He knew where my family was. You know, I had small children. In his threats, his voice was so real. So Meg tells us this terrifying story. Yeah. Where actually she says like one day she's out for a walk in her very cute neighborhood. Yeah, she's walking her dog. She calls it a very cute neighborhood. I was like, Meg, we got a girl. I love you. (laughs) Walking her dog and a car tries to run her over and actually breaks her leg. I knew it was John. I had no doubt that it was John. He knew that I was on that search warrant. He believed that I had just ruined his life. This guy just tried to kill me. 
So she calls Detective Lucan and she's like, is this? Because Detective Lucan's on our side here. Right. He really, really, really wants to For get sure. John. And he's like, he had an alibi, which just means he paid some guy and hired some guy to kill his wife. But his also, ex-wife, his ex or whoever. What's the alibi? I want to see the alibi. Nobody even tells us what it is. He's probably on video somewhere putting uh, shards of glass in his Taco Bell <laughs> taquito or whatever. Fiestas or whatever they want to have from the wonderful whites. Yeah, and this episode ends with everybody going, it's like a round robin of being like, yeah, either John was going to kill somebody or John was going to get killed. Right. That's how this ends. And it is how it ends. Right. <laughs> it actually is. <laughs> You guys, just a quick reminder, you can get episode two of this right now ad-free at the $5 level on Patreon. Yeah. You don't have to wait a week. I'm still going to be mad. I know you are. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still mad, everybody. Guys, don't forget the tickets for our 2020 tour are on sale. A lot of the venues are sold out. The tickets are going real fast. Yeah. If you're planning to come see us in 2020, go to truecrimeobsessed.com, see us live, and get your tickets while you can. Come hang out. And also the paints. Just a reminder. If, so much. Yeah. If you want more of us right this second, you get 100 or more full bonus episodes. Yeah. At the $5 level, it's like Casey Anthony, the Menendez brothers. Lorena. Lorena. Lacey Peterson. Yes. Oh, my God. OJ. OJ. Menendez. Uh, 20 episodes of Making a Murder. 20, 20. episodes of Making a Murder. I actually think we did 19. I think we doubled up one. I think you're right about that. Regardless, 20-ish. <laughs> Don't come for me. Right. Whatever. Serial so Season long. 1, The Staircase of Chicks. You guys, it's all there. So much. Just if, you, if you're if you into it, go to patreon.com slash Obsessed or go to the website, click on the Patreon link. Yeah. I, I'm not going to stump you about what we're doing next because we're doing part two of this next. Oh, yeah, it's this. It's this. No spoilers, but <laughs> it's a pretty big spoiler. This is exactly what we're doing. But we do have amazing outtakes. So go to the outtakes. You're going to want to hear them for this episode. Oh, boy. I always get nervous when you're really excited about I know. the outtakes because I forget everything I say. <laughs> I know. That's oh, God. Mind. I'm nervous now. Ooh. Be nervous, girl. Ooh. All right. We love you. We love you. Thanks so much. All right. Bye. Bye. We watched Ratatouille last night for the first time. I Ooh. sobbed throughout the entire thing. You did. You old softy. Mike is like, we're not going to start rescuing rats now. I was like, but he's an excellent chef and he's adorable and he's lonely and his family misses him. Now I'm like obsessed with Remy and Ratatouille. I think about Fievel all the time. I can't even talk I about Fievel. <laughs> Can you imagine you're high on coke out of your mind? No. And you're dancing at some shitty party somewhere and the door gets busted open with one of those battering rams? No. like It's not Sylvia Rivera with the parking meter from Stonewall. Oh. <laughs> See, then would be like, well, now it's a party. <laughs> so we meet Angela. She tells us that she met John when she was 20 years old working at a bank in Los Gatos, California. That means the cats, Jillian. Okay, fine. <laughs> Los Doggos is how you say dogs. Fine. You speak fluent Spanish. I do. The pro- the other problem with you is that you're so fucking polite. <laughs> like you, and I another was, thing. I was thinking about this the other day. Like you are, you were raised so well. I was. You're I have so to say. nice and polite. Well, thank you. You know what I mean? Like you're not, you're not really apologizing because you're a woman. You're apologizing because like. Well, maybe I disturb somebody what, or like exactly. startle them. Yeah. Like I startle easily too. So I'm always putting myself in other people's shoes. Uh-huh. Like did I just disturb them in some way? That's so annoying. <laughs> 